0: Well, we are going to conclude our 36-week study of the church, the doctrine of the church, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. We're going to do a topical message on the church's freedom this morning, namely religious freedom, religious liberty, and then starting next week, and for eight weeks, there'll be eight expositions on various psalms. We usually do uh, summer studies of the Psalms. And so the summer Psalms is where we'll be again starting next week. And you probably don't know how blessed you are as a church to have so many faithful men besides me who can preach the word of God. Is there amen out there anywhere? There are so many brothers who are in our church who are Able to handle the Word of God and preach it clearly in ways that are faithful. So, over the next eight weeks, you're going to hear from, I don't know, four dudes? I forget how many. Four or five guys in the church, and then one guy from outside our church are going to come in and be preaching the Psalms over the next eight weeks while I'm on sabbatical. And then after I come back in September, Lord willing, we're going to start a, uh, a long study of the book of Genesis, the book of Beginnings. And it it will likely be very long. So uh, you've been warned. Now, um, when I come back from sabbatical, I'm going to have so much to say, by the way. So that first week, just hang on tight. I think it's like September 5th or 4th or something. Um, We're going to jump in. We're going to be full steam ahead when we get to Genesis. Okay? So that's later today we're going to do religious liberty. And here's, here's what I wanted to say. This is not an exposition of a particular text. This is a topical sermon. We're going to look at a topic and what the Bible says about this topic. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this topic in particular is because this is massively important in the culture we live in. If you listen to Al Mohler's The Briefing, like every single morning he's talking to us about ways that our, our freedoms, our rights as Christians are being infringed upon in culture, uh, secular, the, t- the secular culture of America. And so I think it's good and wise for us to spend some time thinking about this issue, for me to talk to you a little bit, almost in a lecture-type form, about religious freedom. What it is, why it's important, is it in the, it in the Bible? It's so important, and it's becoming increasingly important in light of the secular religion, uh, we might say the godless religion, that is driving the, the country that we live in. We need to think carefully about our basic God-given right to worship God freely. So religious freedom is our topic this morning. Of course, on July 4th, we celebrate freedom. But freedom from what? Freedom from what? According to the Declaration of Independence, ratified by the Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776, What would become the United States of America was birthed out of a desire to be free from... How would you finish that sentence? Who said it? Tyranny. Good job, Maddie. Freedom from... Y'all got to just hug Maddie afterwards. Tyranny. Tyranny. Freedom from tyranny. This is how the um, framers of the Declaration said it. I'll read just a part of it. Quote, When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states, end quote. So the framers of the declaration were declaring their freedom, most fundamentally, from the tyranny of the King of England. They believed that free people ought to be free to govern themselves. That they ought to be free to speak, free to assemble freedom of press, freedom to bear arms, free to elect their own leaders, free to own their own property, free to a fair trial by jury. I'm just mentioning some of the Bill of Rights. You can read them for yourself. But before all of those other freedoms, what was the first and most fundamental freedom in the mind of our founders? What was the first and most fundamental freedom It's the first amendment to the Constitution. In their minds, it was the freedom of religion. The first line, this is super instructive. The first line of the first amendment to the Constitution says this quote Congress shall not make, excuse me, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So in their minds, religious freedom was the first and foremost, most fundamental freedom. And in that one sentence, they say something very simple. They say two things, really. They say no government should coerce religion and no government should restrict religion. Did you see it again? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The government can't establish a state religion. And, or, they should not prohibit... a the free exercise thereof. They shouldn't restrict people from exercising their religion freely. Our founders believed it was one of the certain unalienable rights that God gives to all people everywhere, namely that they should be free to worship in the ways that they wanted to worship. Now quickly, let me just say that there are some who minimize this, some who seem to reject this first freedom. Even recently, a well-known preacher said this. He said, quote, I don't even support religious freedom. Religious freedom is what sends people to hell. To say I support religious freedom is to say I support idolatry. It's to say I support lies. I support hell. I support the kingdom of darkness. You can't say that. No Christian with half a brain would say we support religious freedom. We support the truth. End quote. Now, obviously, we support the truth. But what this brother is doing is he's pitting the exclusiveness of the truth, of the gospel, against a basic, unalienable right we call religious freedom. He's saying that these things are mutually incompatible. And I want to say, well, I agree with you. We must stand on the truth at every cost. We will stand on the truth. But as we stand there, we're going to stand with grace We're going to stand with compassion. We're going to stand with patience and persuasion, not coercion. Of all people, those who hold to the exclusive claims of the gospel should have a quiet confidence that the truth will prevail. We're not worried about the truth winning or losing. We've read the end of the story. This gives us the ability to evangelize without any need for coercion. We trust that God Himself is the only ultimate and actual, infallible, adequate judge. No government or religious leader is. So, our confidence in the gospel doesn't undermine religious freedom. Many would argue, and I agree, it actually compels it. It compels our pursuit of religious liberty. Christians, we should love and cherish and seek to promote the spread of religious liberty around the world because we care about the spread of the gospel around the world. Now, as Baptists, we especially have a passion for this. You're like, John, I'm not a Baptist. That's okay. I still love you. Um, We're a Baptist church, unapologetically. Um, And let me spend a few moments doing some Baptist history. Can we do that? All right. Hang with me. Hang with me. Let me give you some background on why, as Baptists, we are especially in tune with these issues and why we care about them. Many of our forefathers and mothers died for these issues. So, for example, way back in the 16th century in Zurich, Switzerland, a man named Ulrich Zwingli began reforming the church. Some individuals in Zurich were frustrated with the pace of the reform. They thought it was too slow. They argued that Martin Luther over in Germany and Zwingli there in Switzerland were relying on the government too much to carry out these reforms. These individuals, they wanted separation. They wanted the reformers to come out of the government and away from the government and just focus on reforming the church. Many of these who... Who were saying this also began to reject the practice of infant baptism. They began to argue from the Bible that only believers should be baptized, and a baby by definition can 't accept the gospel, and so we shouldn 't baptize babies. They were denounced and called rebaptizers or anabaptists ana-rebaptist, baptizer rebaptizers anabaptists they were heavily per- persecuted, even executed by some of the reformers and others. Uh, One city, I forget where in Switzerland, one of these Anabaptists was drowned in a river, basically to make fun of his belief in immersion. They drowned him. So that's in the 16th century. Fast forward to the next century. In 1607, a group of Christians led by John Smith, a preacher in England, left England, fled to Amsterdam and the Netherlands to escape persecution and establish a pure church. A few years after that, a man named Thomas Helwys took several people with him back to England and founded the First Baptist Church in England in 1612. His theology, Thomas Helwys, was less eccentric than Smith's, but his commitment to religious liberty was just as strong. I took out a super long quote from Thomas Helwys. He wrote this pamphlet or this book, To the King of England, and it's amazing. <laughs> no one does this anymore. He addressed on the front page of the book, he was like, To the king, blah, blah, blah. Um, you're not God, oh by the way, you have no authority over immortal souls. (laughs) That's the first front page of the book, Thomas Helwes. He was imprisoned, naturally, in 1615 and died in 1616 for his views that the state shouldn't have control over the church. Fast forward just a few more decades, you get to America. The first Baptist church in America was established In 1639 by Roger Williams. He came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1631. He argued that the Puritans that were filling up Massachusetts had no right to take land from the Indians. This was a revolutionary idea at that time, because that's kind of what our forefathers and mothers were doing, taking land from the Indians. Roger Williams says, no, you don't have that right he felt that it was wrong for magistrates to enforce church attendance and other spiritual practices 1636 he founded the city of providence in rhode island these american baptists from roger williams and then on forward developed their idea or excuse me the idea that their english forefathers had touched on religious freedom religious liberty or the freedom of the conscience Freedom of the Conscience Baptists across these 13 colonies began to raise questions about the wisdom of the church state establishment. So at that time, you have to understand the U.S. was not a place of pure religious freedom. The exceptions were Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, but Baptists and other groups were often persecuted by other Protestants. Again, just as uh, Switzerland and Germany in the 16th century, Protestants were killing Protestants. So fast forward to the 17th century, Protestants in America were killing other Protestants. This is a travesty. By the way, we have to be honest about our history, amen? We can celebrate America and be honest at the same time. We can celebrate what God has done in the church and be honest about the evils that have happened in the church at the same time. Baptists were persecuted because they advocated this idea that the church is an entity ordained by God and only used to be used towards His ends, namely the worship of His name and the proclamation of His gospel. They argued that the church is not a state entity. The state has no authority over the church. In the Puritan Northeast and then the Anglican South, Baptists and other outsiders were regularly persecuted. In Anglican Virginia, you had to have a license to preach if you weren't an Anglican. Baptist preachers were often imprisoned and whipped. Mobs broke up worship services, and magistrates shut down churches. Just imagine if our Anglican friends from Dallas came in here this morning and pulled me to the parking lot and just started beating me. What would you do, by the way? (laughs) You got my back, right? (laughs) Thank you, Rose. The rest of you cowards, I'm just kidding. This was happening. Church services. Church services were being broken up by other Christians. Pastors persecuted. Baptist pastors. Last point, and we'll move on from our history lesson. A Baptist man named John Leland was friends with James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, and this was hugely providential. Damien taught on Providence this morning. Where are you, Damien, somewhere? God's kind Providence was working in this friendship. John Leland, friends with Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence and was so crucial in the founding of our nation. Well, he and James Madison, he's friends with these guys, and he essentially strikes a deal with them um, to to make the disestablishment of religion a part of the Constitution, a part of the Bill of Rights, to be the first amendment of the Bill of Rights. And it is. It is. Leland fought for the disestablishment of religion, and through God's kind providence, he won. His friends, by the way, Thomas Jefferson wasn't the biggest fan of freedom of religion. He was from Anglican, Virginia, and was mostly okay with the way things were. So to summarize, in many ways, it's Baptists who birthed the notion of religious liberty, who brought it into the public discourse and brought it forward as public policy in Western nations like ours. We largely have Baptists to thank for why, if I could just put a fine point on it, think about this for a moment, We largely have Baptists to think for why there's not an Anglican, Virginia, Catholic, Louisiana, Congregationalist, Massachusetts, or Mormon, Utah. We have Baptists to think that we have a union of 50 states where in every state we're free to exercise our religion. Of all people, then, I would argue even if we do only have half a brain. We love this truth. We love this God-given right, and we should work hard to promote its free propagation. But, but, and here's where I think it gets good. We don't believe in religious liberty because we're Baptists. And we don't believe in religious liberty because it's in the Bill of Rights. We believe in religious liberty because we believe we can find it in the Bible. Okay? Now, yes, the Constitution protects it. Baptists have promoted it. But we believe that only God provides it. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at what the Bible says about religious liberty. From the outset, I want to be clear that there's no chapter and verse that says, Thou shalt have religious liberty. There's no explicit command for religious liberty for all, but its reality as a fundamental human right is based based on all the major doctrines found in the Bible. So let's go through these one at a time. I have six of these. Six major doctrines that undergird this basic human right. Number one, religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of God It's rooted in the doctrine of God. The principle of religious liberty is rooted in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because God created everything, guess who's in charge of everything? God. He's sovereign over everything. The United States of America didn't create everything. God did. So religious liberty begins with God as the creator and ruler over all things. The first sentence of our statement of faith here at Preston Highlands the Baptist faith and message, in Article 17 on religious liberty, it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and He has left it free from the doctrines and and commandments of men which are contrary to His word or not contained in it. End quote. It says there, God alone is Lord of the conscience. This means that no state No government should set itself up as Lord or God over the conscience. Only God is God. No other authority has the right to bind our consciences except Him. This principle is also echoed in the first command of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing should set itself up as God that isn't God. God is ultimate, thus it's wrong to set up a government that is ultimate. Professor Andrew Walker says it like this. He says, quote, A government shouldn't tell a citizen who God is or how God wants to be worshipped. A government is designed to see that laws are followed and that citizens are protected. The government isn't designed to tell you or me what the meaning of baptism is. God is God. He is the authority over all, not government. So religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of God. Secondly, religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of man. The doctrine of man. In the first chapter of the Bible, we learn that God created man in his own image, just Genesis 1.27, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So because all people are made in the image of God, all people are fundamentally the same, having equal dignity, value, and worth. This means that there's no inherent spiritual superiority among men. You're like, John, well, you're a pastor, and I bear the image of God no more than you do. I have no spiritual, by essence, I have no spiritual superiority over anyone. Because of the image of God, we are all fundamentally equal. Meaning that no one has the authority to suppress someone else's spiritual freedom. And we can talk about, well, you know, sin says we're not free. Well, we're going to get to that. All people have equal spiritual status before God because all people bear the image of God. Let me give you two practical applications of this for our, cult, our current cultural context. First, the state should not tell Christians what they should believe. The state should not tell Christians what they should believe. This is why it's wrong, for example, for the state to punish churches or Christians for believing and practicing things they've always believed and practiced. For example, the state should not punish churches or Christians for not serving same-sex couples who are seeking marriage. Christians have believed and do believe that same-sex unions are wrong because the Bible makes that clear. The state, therefore, shouldn't force Christians through threat or punishment to believe something that they don't believe and have never believed. Again, just listen to Al Mohler's brief, the briefing. Every morning he's talking about these matters. There are countless examples of how our state is starting to push us to places that we don't want to go. By us, I mean Christians and churches. And we'll have hard decisions to make in the years and decades to come. One recent well-known example you may have seen in the news a few years ago was when uh, Hobby Lobby was sued. The government mandated that Hobby Lobby, or they sued, excuse me. The government had mandated that Hobby Lobby provided their uh, should provide their employees with insurance that includes access to forms of birth control that could lead to an abortion. Hobby Lobby sued the government because the government was keeping them from living out their values and beliefs and how they ran their business. Other Catholic charities have done this. Christian universities have done this. Thankfully, in the Hobby Lobby case, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby, preserving their freedom of conscience, their freedom to practice their beliefs. The government has no right to tell us what we must believe or practice. Second, because God is Lord of the conscience, people should be free to worship as their conscience dictates. People should be free to worship as their conscience dictates. Now, we may disagree with how a person chooses to worship, but we must allow them the right to seek God for themselves. Every person is made in the image of God. Therefore, every person is created with a conscience. Christians should respect the consciences of those who come to different conclusions about who God is. Again, Andrew Walker is helpful on this point. He says, we don't have to like that others claim religious truth outside the Bible. We don't have to like that other religions contend for adherence, but we cannot Coerce people's minds away from what they perceive as true. What must occur is the art of persuasion and evangelism, not forcing someone to agree with us. End quote. This means that we should support the right of Muslims to build their mosque, Jews to build their synagogues, and Hindu and Buddhists to build their temples, and Christians to build their church buildings. Our job is not to fight them for living out their religion, but to engage them with the love and truth of the gospel. We should defend their right to freely express their religion just as we want them to do so for us. This doesn't mean we agree with their religion. It means that we think, as image bearers of God, they have a right to express it. And here's the key. If they don't have that right, then neither do you. God alone is Lord of the conscience. So we don't have to agree with Muslims or Buddhists or whoever to say you have a right because you're a human being to worship how you see fit. Do you see how religious liberty is built and undergirded by theology? This is a thoroughly theological right, although these things are often missed in our public discourse. The third doctrine is the doctrine of sin. The re- religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of sin. The reality of the fall and original sin, the fact that sin has touched and tainted everyone and everything, means that no person and no government is capable of knowing and applying the will of God perfectly for all people. Sin means that no person and no government is capable of enforcing spiritual standards properly. Some Christians say that this is why we need to make the law of God the law of the land. That God's word should seamlessly rule the church and the world and the state. This is called Christian Reconstructionism or Dominion Theology or a version of Theonomy. Now, of course, all just laws, all righteous laws will be based on the word of God, whether lawmakers realize that or not. But whether or not the Bible actually commands this, notwithstanding, thinking that we or any government can actually or actually has the ability to apply the law of God perfectly to all people is naive at best, dangerous and deadly at worst. The prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We barely understand the wickedness in our own hearts. So how could we then hope to apply the law of God perfectly to an entire society? The reality and pervasiveness of sin means that we shouldn't absolutize authority, religious or otherwise. This is why it's beautiful, this is free, didn't plan to say this, but this is why it's a beautiful thing that we live in a, in a, in a democratic republic. That, who has the authority in our country? Under God. The people, thank you, the people. Power is not absolutized or centralized, though it is increasingly we feel, we think, we see but we still have rights and authority to choose who's going to have governing authority. And that's a good thing in light of the doctrine of sin. Fourth, religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of Christ. So we've done the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, now the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ... Remember, Jesus came as a servant, not as a king. He will one day come as a king. And everybody who doesn't bow their knee to him, the God-man, will burn. And I don't say that lightly. But the first time Jesus came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as a servant, and this means that those who follow him are supposed to follow his servant example. And one of the ways he served was, though Jesus obviously pointed people to God, he never, think about this, he never coerced faith. He never coerced faith in God, even while he promoted faith in God. You might remember in Luke 13, 34, where Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would, like a a chicken gathers her hens, how I would love to have gathered you, but you would not. You would not. Jesus grieved over the unbelief of the Jews, but he did not, in response, force their belief. The favorite passage of the Anabaptists in the 16th century... defending religious liberty was Jesus' parable in Matthew 13 about the the weeds and the wheat. Will you turn there? Matthew 13. I want us to read it. Look at it just for a moment. Matthew 13. Matthew 13 starting verse 24. The parable of the weeds or the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The wheat and the tares. Your translation might say. Matthew 13, 24, he, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time... I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus says that in the world, the wheat and the weeds are to be let alone to grow together. They're supposed to just be let alone, even though an enemy has sown the weeds. Let them alone. Jesus says, let them grow. Just let them grow. Let them grow He says this so that his disciples don't think that the seed sown by the enemy, the wheats, must be coerced and removed. Now, of course, we can warn of impending judgment when the reapers will come and the weeds will be thrown into the fire and the wheat will be gathered into the master's barn. Won't that be a beautiful day when we are brought into the barn of God? (laughs) I'm, I'm from the country, by the way. So, there's lots of different kinds of barns. Not all barns are like smelly, disgusting places. Ever been to a barn dance? Anybody? Oh, okay. Just not... Know your audience, John. Know your audience. Just imagery of being brought into the safe shelter of God's provision. Or being gathered up and bundled together and thrown into the fire. Jesus says, it's okay to, to, to know this. This reality is coming. Tell tell people. But your job is not to go out there and start plucking the weeds out. That's not your job, disciples, to coerce the unbelievers into faith. Then, of course, the night Jesus was arrested, you remember Peter drew his sword and struck one of the guards and slid off his ear. How he did that is remarkable. Like How did he just get the ear and not the whole face? You know? And, and why not the, the shoulder while he got the ear? Anyways, sorry. Just got the ear. Jesus, of course, heals him. But he also says to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus is forbiding. For, for he is forbidding Peter from using restrictive force to compel belief. And the reason he does so is because he's confident that his father has a good plan for him, even in the moment of his affliction, and that his father's plan will happen. That his father will judge perfectly and accurately. Nothing will go unnoticed. Jesus was against coercion in matters of religious belief. So we've seen the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ. Now, fifth, the doctrine of salvation. Religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of salvation. Salvation is an inward spiritual event, not an outward physical event. Salvation is an inward spiritual event, not an outward physical event. I'd love to preach on that for a while. Um, you're not a Christian because you showed up at church this morning because you're keeping your mouth cleaner than you used to or because you didn't sleep around last weekend or whatever. You're not a Christian because of anything that you do. Period. If you're a Christian, you're, you're a Christian because of what someone else did for you. And that work, that sacrifice, Jesus on the cross, was applied not to your performance, your, your, you know, your new kind of rituals and stuff, That work was applied to your heart so that you literally become a new person. Jesus says it this way in John 3.3, Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Unless something happens to you spiritually on the inside, you won't see heaven. The kingdom has to be born in you for you to be born into the kingdom. God has not delegated his authority over people's souls. Only his spirit can save. Again, Jesus says in John 3 5, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water, excuse me, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this means that people should be left free to respond to the Spirit's work through the Word of God. People shouldn't be required to respond as in a state church. People shouldn't be restricted from responding, as in an oppressive government. John Piper says it this way, he says, It belongs to the very nature of Christianity that genuine faith in God, genuine allegiance to Jesus, genuine Christ-exalting obedience to God's Word is only possible if it is uncoerced and free. Religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of salvation. Sixth and finally, religious liberty is rooted in the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church. The Bible teaches that the church is a spiritual organization with spiritual purposes. 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church is a spiritual organization with spiritual purposes purposes the church doesn't therefore have authority over worldly matters or physical matters the church is given authority over its own its own members but not over those outside the church 1 Corinthians 5 11 through 13 paul writes now but now i am writing to you this is so important please hear this now i'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunk, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, Four. here's his reason, Four. what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul couldn't be clearer. The church has no authority on those outside the church. Only God does. The church has authority over its own, and only its own, under the authority of Jesus Christ. So we've seen the the doctrine of God, man, sin, Christ, salvation, and the church, how each undergirds this notion of religious liberty, This brings us to, and I'm going to start to land the plane, so buckle up, bring your seats to their full and upright positions and your tray tables. (laughs) This is a huge issue, the separation of church and state, the separation of church and state. As I said earlier, Baptists led the way, led the charge for this to be part of the Constitution, but were men like John Leland and others right to insist on this separation? Were they right to do this? Well, I hope that our survey of these six central doctrines of Christianity has shown you that, yes, Leland was right to insist on this. The only way for Christians to argue that the state should enforce the church's doctrines and practices is to apply to the church what the Old Testament teaches about Israel. We understand that though there's continuity between Israel and the church, there's also discontinuity. We have things that are alike and things that are very unlike as the church, with Israel. Israel was a theocracy, a, a religious nation state ruled by God. The church is not a theocracy or a religious nation state ruled by God. The church is, of course, ruled by God, but the church is made up of all nations, people from all nations, who are called to submit to the governments thereunder are under while they submit to their Lord. Therefore, it's not appropriate to apply the religious state model To the church or to the state, the church and the state are two separate entities, two separate kingdoms, if you will. They may support each other in some ways, but each is given its own unique work. This is why Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Separation of church and state. The reason I want to dwell here just for a moment is because this phrase is misused all the time in political discourse. Separation of church and state does not mean that one's religious belief should have no bearing on how they function in the public square or in the government. This is ludicrous. Everybody acts out of what they believe, right? Right. Even the person who says, I have no beliefs. They're atheists or whatever. They're still functionally governed by the things they say they don't believe about God and reality and life and people and right and wrong, etc., There's still something governing them. So it's just incorrect to say that separation of church and state means that, hey, Christian, you leave your Christianity at church or in your prayer closet, don't bring that stuff to the public square. It has no right here. That's simply not fair because everybody's bringing their worldview to the public square. It's not intellectually honest when we're accused of being the only ones who let our beliefs govern our lives. It does mean, the separation of church and state does mean positively, this is what's lost in the public discourse, it does mean that the church should be free from the state and that there should be no state church. The church should be free from the state and there should be no state church. Any time a religious group attempts to establish or control a state, this principle is violated. There are cults who've tried to set up their own governments on their own land, ruled by their own laws. There are Islamic republics where the clerics rule the country. These church states do not allow individuals to follow their consciences, but rather force people into a mold of thinking, believing, and behaving. And even if they're Christian in name, this compromises the true nature and mission of the church. Why? Because it obscures the true nature of salvation. States cannot save. Only God can save. So we champion the the, uh, the notion of separation of church and state, but we need to be clear about what it actually is and what it isn't. Religious freedom, as I've tried to argue, is grounded in the great truths of the gospel. God, man, sin, Christ, salvation, and the church. It's not a right... From man, but a gift from God. And I'm going to close now with an exhortation from Russell Moore. Dr. Moore wrote this essay interestingly 15 years ago, before Obergefell in 2015, before a lot of the cultural upheaval that we see now. 15 years ago, Dr. Moore said this If we're to be a church that maintains religious liberty, we need to love the religion as much as the liberty. Can I say that again and then there would be like a big amen at the end? If we're to be a church that maintains religious liberty, we need to love the religion as much as the liberty. Amen. His point is, it's the gospel that we love. And it's the gospel that then creates and promotes, establishes these things we call religious liberty, religious freedom, separation of church and state. He goes on to say that means we'll we'll be increasingly odd in American culture. We may have less and less in common with libertarian Republicans and libertine Democrats. If the outside culture pronounces this anathema, so be it, it always has. And if Caesar decides to add his sword to the disapproval of the culture, so be it. He's done it before. The church still stands. We will claim our mantle of dissent, not simply by standing in the public square demanding our rights, though we must sometimes do that. We claim it, first of all, by being an alternative community, the people of Jesus Christ." End quote we as Christians and churches have something to show and offer the world that they won't see anywhere else. We have a freedom that we found in Jesus Christ that they haven't seen or or felt or experienced or heard or had anywhere else. This gospel of freedom is meant to create a new people who show the rest of the peoples the goodness and greatness of our God. And no matter what they say or do uh, do to us, As Moore says, the church still stands. The church still stands. We don't support coercion of any kind, religious or secular. As Christians, we don't persecute those with whom we disagree. We don't manipulate. We don't bribe. We don't force people to agree with us. Here are our weapons the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word. So we take these weapons and we give ourselves to proclamation, persuasion, and prayer. We give ourselves to proclaim the gospel, persuade people to see its truthfulness, and pray that God would intervene and free them in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take... this time and these few moments to instruct our minds and our hearts to show us again the beauty of Jesus Christ. We may have talked a lot about religious freedom, but I pray that in our hearts the thing that we're most passionate about is that religious part, that gospel part. I pray that you would instruct us you would strengthen us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.